Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ramblick. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. Now, we, in Australia, prior to Christmas, we had a particular um, incident up in Queensland where three people who have since been defined as terrorists by the Queensland police killed two policemen and a civilian in what has been uh, described as a, an act of terrorism. And it was inspired by uh, pre-millennialism or some form of extreme religious uh, belief uh, enmeshed with a range of other and range of other uh, other factors uh, that was difficult for a lot of people to understand from anecdotal conversations and just observing media discourse uh, and one of the reason might one of the reasons might be is that people don't generally deal with these issues or study these issues in depth. They're, they're more concerned about uh, making sure they've got bread on the table, milk in the fridge, and all the normal things in life. Extraordinary events don't always register uh, particularly well. So today I've got uh, one of the world's experts in the area of radicalisation, um, and a man who's written several books on terrorism and uh, the mindset of terrorists, Professor John Horgan. Um, John has toured Australia. He's been around the world, and he's recognised in that space. It's a privilege to, to speak with him. John, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Uh, ab absolute, uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, it's all uh, pleasure's all mine. Now, he... Uh, in the academic world, in the legal world, in 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 you know, general discourse, it's always useful to start with a definition of a term, so we know what we're talking about. We throw the word radicalization around uh, loosely today, I think, but you've looked at it for quite a while. How do you describe it? I would describe radicalization as a word we should probably get rid of. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the first thought that comes into my head whenever I talk and think about radicalization. Um, I, I think by and large, the word refers to a process that we don't really understand that suggests or implies that people are acquiring and are committing to a certain set of views that in turn might make them more likely to support or engage in an act of violence. And that's a very long-winded and, and caveated uh, definition, but by and large, that's what it refers to. Essentially the process through which people acquire radical views and sometimes act on those views. Um, that certainly is in the, something that occurs in the context of terrorism. But people could be radicalized, couldn't they, and not not be violent. They could just be people that have a particular view, and it's a view that even with you know alternative evidence, uh, or rather evidence that they that their view may be wrong. They still hold on to it for whatever reason. I mean, it's not, it, radicalization itself is not a precursor to, to, or doesn't need to be a precursor to violence, does it? Uh, 
No, absolutely not. In fact, it's the opposite for the most part. The, the overwhelming majority who, of people who hold radical and even extremist views will never engage in violence. Um, violence is, is the most statistically unlikely outcome of holding on to radical views. And unfortunately, um, and this is this is part of the reason why I think, you know, the word radicalization is so um, uh, challenging and problematic now because it is it is for, for good or for bad, it is synonymous with the, the process of becoming involved in terrorism. And that is, um, it's regrettable. I think it has led to misleading uh, a policy formulation. I think it, is, it has led us down all kinds of uh, um, 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 rabbit holes and garden paths or use whatever analogy you want, but it is, it is largely proven to be an unhelpful concept. Um, so, so yeah, not only will very, very few people who hold radical views wind up doing terrorism, but not all people who engage in terrorism necessarily hold radical views either. I mean, some do. Some, some are the true believers and they can, they will sit with you all day long and, and talk about how they can rationalize or sanitize or, or legitimize the kinds of views that, that, that they feel um, um, warrant violence. Um, um, uh, but, but, but for the most part, um, uh, uh, people don't necessarily get into terrorism for those reasons. Well, uh, if we could just stick on, on just briefly on, on the issue of um, uh, radicalization outside of the context of the terrorism, which is the principal area of your focus. One of the things that fascinates me is watching social media and observing particular accounts on Twitter, for example, that seem to have a single theme. Um, for, for example, there are people who will continue to tweet and talk about evils of, you know, the, the Murdoch empire. They can't help themselves. Every single time they see somebody on a television program, for example, down here on a Sunday morning called Insiders, they will continue. If it's somebody that has some sort of origin with a uh, Murdoch slash News Corporation organization, they will persistently point that out. And I'm thinking it... On the one hand, I'm thinking, so what? But on the other hand, I'm thinking, good God, man, or good God, woman, whatever, uh, you're, you're fixated. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it, it, it appears to be a form of, of, of radicalization in its own right, doesn't it? Possibly. I mean, it, it, you know, there are so so there's, you know, there's probably a very convoluted Venn diagram out there that, that puts all of this in perspective. But there's, <laughs> there's some there's some there's some overlapping terms here. OK, so, uh, you know, so w w one of the reasons why radicalization is a strange thing to try to define is that people will often say, well, radicalization is the process of becoming radical. Well, you know, OK, maybe. But radicalization, extremism, polarization—these are these are very often, you know, they're, they're closely linked but often distinct concepts. Um, at 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 the heart of of where where my interests as someone who's who's, who's you know, I'm, I'm so I'm interested in terrorism. I'm interested in a very 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 tiny subset of of people who become radicalized. 
Um, um, but but where I start to where I start to sit up and take notice um, uh, is when people do things on social media, wherever that 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 I guess hint at developing a commitment to extremism as opposed to just polarization. You know, because the kind of the back and forth stuff we do on social media, the the shit posting, the this or the that. That is what social media is designed to do. It is structured to elicit these reactions. It is structured for to, 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 to encourage us to take risks and do things we normally wouldn't do. But it is designed to elicit these reactions from us. Okay. I'm not talking about expressing problematic views or, or views that you or I might think is inappropriate or offensive. That's not what I'm talking about when it comes to extremism or radicalization. I'm talking about the idea, as, as my good friend learned colleague J.M. Berger said, um, this is the idea that in order for, for my group to succeed, you must lose. You must lose. And the way in which you must lose is through aggressive action or, or in this case, violence. So, so it's, a, it's a, you know, you might say, well, it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a spectrum here, fine. You know, again, whatever, whatever analogy we want to try to make sense of this, but, but I wanted, there's a very important distinction to be made qualitatively between the kind of stuff we see every single second of every single day on social media versus stuff that, the stuff that sort of you know, makes me um, 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 express a bit of concern. If we turn back to what you describe um, as a very narrow focus, but it is, it's probably the, a major focus, how difficult is it to have discussions with people about how classifying motivations of uh, people who we all terrorists, for want of a better term. Um, how difficult is it? Because not everything is easily collapsible in something like, um, say, religious motivation or uh, an ideological motivation, which is where we're at in Australia with discourse with our securities agency. Um, yeah. How it, 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 and yeah. It, I'm mindful of the fact in saying that that we, as, as people, look for patterns and look for ways of understanding the world. So how do we unpack that better so we deal with nuance more readily in this space? Oh, a lot to unpack there. Um, I would say <laughs> the, the, the most important first step there is is for us to be explicit and clear about what we're talking about. And I know that's easier said than done, but yep. motivation is a very, very tricky concept indeed, because even for a person that seems to readily align themselves with a particular ideology, whether it's left-wing, right-wing, religious, or something else, what motivates that individual person um, um, uh, might be very difficult to figure out. Um, you know, there's there's never there's never one factor. We know that from the research, um, uh, and it, it doesn't mean that the research has has failed. It just means the research is telling us there is no one factor. It's typically a mixture of personal and ideological drivers that sort of will 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 be going on in, in, in a person's head at any one moment in time. Um, and so so there are ways in which we can 
sit and try to work through that. But 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 I want to go back to a, a, a point you mentioned before I forget it. When you said about how in Australia there are discussions about whether there is a religious or ideological motivation. I'm very curious about the wording there, because for me, um, I think that's a false dichotomy. Religion is a type of ideology. So, so, so it's not that something is religious or ideological. I mean, it's all ideological. So, so, so when I look at the, the motivations of terrorist movements today, they can be, they can be traditionally political in the sense of left-wing or right-wing grievances. They can be religious in the sense of there being some religious aspiration. Um, uh, they can be single issue in terms of the environment or animal rights or, you know, so we can think about categorizing terrorist movements in that way, but it's all ideological. It's not that it's religious or ideological. It is all ideological. I think that's a critical uh, point to, to embrace because, because ideology, what, what is ideology except an organized set of beliefs that people engage with for, for, for reasons that you know, are, are sometimes unknown, but they, they, they find them attractive and empower, empowering. But those reasons give them meaning, they give them direction, they give them a sense of purpose in, 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 in what they do and how they explain that to themselves or others. Now, but for something we... to be terrorism, it's all ideological. Okay. Um... I mean, one of the one of the things that that then raises is is the distinction um, that you know certain ideologies. If we if we make the assertion that everything that that, that the motivations that a terrorist might you know that might trigger a terrorist into action. Um, include an ideology and, and, and religion is a subset of that. Is it possible that people distinguish it because there's some holy book involved in a particular ideology as opposed to a political tract or, or do do the, do the texts of um, religious movements serve a similar uh, purpose to sort of Marx or something else? Is there any I don't see difference? any. I don't, I don't see. I don't see any good reason to distinguish those. I mean, if 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 you want to sort of you know to sort of think about this from a historical perspective, I mean, the Bible has, has inspired more violence throughout history than 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 any other book. I mean, I, I see, I see, I see religious texts as simply one more source that is available for recruiters and leaders and ideologues to draw on to try to convince their followers into action. A good recruiter, a good ideologue, will do whatever it takes to mobilize people who who, sim who who would otherwise simply have radical views into action. And so, so you know, ideology can be very, very powerful. But ideology comes in many, many, many different forms. Sometimes it's explicitly religious. Sometimes it's a little bit religious and tinged with um, uh, Islamophobia or 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 or. or xenophobia or something like that um, but there can be many different combinations of, of 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 if you like content that can be drawn on depending on the cause depending on the movement depending on on, on games but but um, uh, depending on what the ideological orientation of the group is they're going to draw on whatever suits them and their purposes
having having established that as a as a concept of the key, as a, if I can use the slightly academic term, um, have a, having sort of established that claim ideology, you know, terrorism is undertaken as a result of an ideology. Ideology can be uh, driven by a religious move religious movement or religious text, but not necessarily. Um, how should people looking at a, an event then try and understand the um, a particular event? Because each person, regardless of their uh, background, will be looking at it through their lens. Someone who is uh, Christian looking at something that, that happens in their climate um, that's caused by an Islamist might react yeah. to that differently to someone who is Muslim who will who would react to it, it it differently with equal abhorrence, but still feel probably feel that you know they that they've been offended by the person who's taken the terrorist action because that's not what their sure. belief may be intended for. Um, so yeah. how do we how do we, how does an observer look look at that, or how how do we impact that for people who are observing these things? Well, I'm going to say something which might sound a little bit offensive, and it's not meant to be that, I assure you. But in in many ways, it, it doesn't really matter what we believe. What matters is how we appropriately and correctly classify an act that has taken place. Um, and, you know, terrorism in contrast to most forms of violence is, is different because the perpetrators will tell us who they are. They'll tell yeah. us who they are. They'll tell us why they're doing what they're doing. Um, in some cases, um, if there is an allegiance or an affiliation with a particular movement, we can pretty much figure it out from there. But it's not that difficult to figure out. I think where, where the different reactions come into things are, you know, where, where there are ambiguous cases. There's no shortage of acts of public violence where we're not entirely sure what's behind the act. So, um, you know, there are, um, for example, I mean, give you a couple of examples. So, as I'm sure you're aware, um, the United States has for years now been in the grip of an epidemic of of, of mass violence and in particular school shootings. The mantra I hear time and time again whenever there's a school shooting is, you know, call it what it is, terrorism. I understand why people feel that way. I understand why they feel that there is a need to condemn these acts as terrorism and for, for everyone to sort of, if you like, unify behind this. But I think, I think to do so is both to mischaracterize terrorism and school shootings in one fall swoop. Most school shootings are the product of individual grievances uh, and frustrations as opposed to being driven by ideology. Um, and, and so, um, you know, this, this notion that we should still call it terrorism because people are terrorized and people feel terror. Well, those things alone don't make an act terrorism, no matter how horrific it might be. So yeah. it's, 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 it, it is, it's much more than an academic issue for us to you know, correctly classify these acts because it has implications for how, how governments allocate resources and so forth. But there are going to be times when, quite frankly, we don't know what motivates someone. In, in, in October of 2017, um, uh, a 
64-year-old man called Stephen Paddock rented two rooms at the, um, at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. From those hotel rooms, he shot down, he shot a thousand rounds of ammunition down onto a group of concert goers and, um, uh, uh, you know, killed dozens and injured hundreds more. To this day, we have no idea what motivated Stephen Paddock. He left no manifesto, no note. Um, 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 he, he didn't confide in loved ones or friends or family why he was doing what he did. But, but again, you know, amidst this chorus of people were terrorized, um, this felt like terrorism, it looked like terrorism, but it was not terrorism. It's, um, yeah, I remember that incident well because we had you know, coverage of it in Australia when it occurred. But even then, we've got, you know, in this country, we've got a, a history of, um, and, and thankfully, because we don't have people wandering the streets with AR-15s just as a, as a thing to do because of our gun laws. We haven't had a lot of these mass shootings, but over the years we have had them in this country. And, um, you know, it seems that when you go back and look at them, they're not, as you say, acts of terrorism until you come up with some, up against something where there is evidence of a, as the Queensland Police and ASIO did with the three individuals, um, up in Queensland, where they have since classified the, I guess, the, the ideology or the framework that they were operating in or as being pre-millennialism. I mean, how, how much of that do you see in the work you do uh, in terms of uh, analysis of material that is left behind to try and decipher whether what we're dealing with is terrorism or whether what we're dealing with is just people who are, yeah. you know, as they say in this, uh, they, they say down here, uh, one sandwich short of a picnic. <laughs> well, you know, I'm so I'm not, I don't work in the intelligence services. I'm an academic, but I think one thing that I believe is common to both worlds is that we look for different sources and types of evidence in order to help us make a judgment um, uh, about a particular thing. Um, I think I think I think one of the biggest challenges here is our lack of patience, quite frankly. Um, uh, and whenever there is a public act of violence, there is what two criminologists here have referred to as motive mongering. There is such an innate and, and knee-jerk reaction to immediately classifying an act as, 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 as terrorism or something else or, or Islamist or left-wing or right-wing or whatever it is. Um, some of it is born out of frustration. Some of it is, is, is about you know, allowing us to feel a little bit more comfortable because we don't like uncertainty and we certainly don't like being able to um, 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 put these acts, uh, you know, make sense of these acts. I keep saying, so So to go back to Las Vegas for a second, a lot of my colleagues in the terrorism research world were very adamant that that despite the lack of any evidence to the contrary, we, we, we should classify Las Vegas as terrorism. And what I said was, 
if, if one day we find a manifesto or a thumb drive stick up this guy's chimney and it reveals him to have this anti-government tract or, or this, 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 this ideological screed, I will change my views. But otherwise, I, I have to go where the evidence tells me. And that is that this was a non-ideologically motivated crime, despite the similarities, and therefore I cannot classify it as terrorism. So, so, so to, 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 to bring this to your, um, uh, to your local example, there are always going to be odd examples of things like that that crop up. You know, there are uh, other odd examples from, from this side of the world would include, um, you may have heard of this, but the, uh, the, the, the growing incel phenomenon where, yeah. where, where violent incels are engaging in acts. So, so to, you know, incels on, on the surface of it certainly wouldn't come to mind when in, in a discussion about radicalization or terrorism or anything like that. However, many violent incels who have committed acts of targeted violence in public have very detailed manifestos that talk about their aspirations for social and political change. I cannot see how that is anything but a new form of terrorism. So again, you know, you're going to have new examples, you're going to have odd examples, but this all comes back to whether you or I or anyone is willing to stick to the definitions of terrorism that we choose. You know, I'm, you know you're, you're, you're an avid student of this stuff as much as I am. They're, they're, anyone who learns about terrorism learns very, very, very quickly there's lots of definitions out there, and you know, um, and you gotta you gotta figure out the pros and cons of, of the ones you choose. The problem in defining terrorism is not that there are too many definitions; it's that we are inconsistent in the definitions that we ourselves claim to adhere to. And that's all I ask of practitioners or or, or, or folks in government or academics. You know, use the definition that you have embraced. And stick to it. And if the definition no longer suits you, then you need a better definition. Or, but at least, but at a minimum, you need to be able to consistently apply that definition to whatever act emerges. One of the things that we've noticed um, in this country, and certainly very colleagues of mine have written about it in various journals, is that is that you either there are people who have had military experience who have taken it upon themselves to say that um, politicians have failed, the system has failed, everything's failed, and it's time to sort of go out and sort of reclaim the country for people because everybody's failed. Yeah. How do we under... What drives the... It, that militia mentality. Um, we, we've had it in, a, in the climate of COVID-19 where governments impose restrictions and then you start to see these movements emerge. Um, and somewhere invariably there is uh, a reversion to sort of the notion of Nuremberg II or hanging people or all that kind of stuff. Um what drives that from, from your work and your observations, John? What drives that kind of thinking? What drives that thinking is is the same thing that drives um, um, just about any form of radicalization that leads to violent extremism. Um, so it's going to vary slightly from context to context and you know time to time and place to place, but there are four universal themes 
that cut across um, uh, this stuff in, in time and place. The first is that there is um, these acts are driven by moral outrage at some injustice. Um, um, certainly from cases I've looked at here stateside where, where members of the both ranking and retired members of the U.S. military have engaged in um, violent extremism. There's a sense of betrayal by the government. There's a sense that they have failed them, that they have um, um, uh, sold them uh, a, a set of lies, if you like, in terms of mobilizing, mobilizing them for action for their country, only to then betray them and, and forget about them. Um, they feel that violence is the only way to right these wrongs. So, so, so the, the, the terrorist, as opposed to the mere radical, is someone who believes that they must take action. And so they're action-oriented. They're doers. They're not just thinkers. They need to get up and do something because by doing, that's the only way that, that results will be achieved. And it's also the only way to inspire others to follow behind. The third thing that they have in common is that they they work they work hard. It might not seem it, but they work hard to convince themselves and to convince others that what they are doing is is just, it is righteous, it is necessary, and that it is urgent. There's a there's a sort of a there's an interesting temporal quality to all of this, which is that if we don't act now, it's going to be too late because either the government is going to do something that will be irreversible. Or as we saw with uh, uh, former President Trump mobilizing um, his followers into action um, uh, uh, before and, and during January 6th, this notion that there was a, uh, an impending invasion from our southern border and that the Democrats were going to uh, uh, you know, change America forever. Um, and the fourth thing that, 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 that these groups and communities have in common is that they believe that their actions will genuinely make the world a better place. They wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Now, now the degree to which, you know, if you look at even the smallest of extremist groups, you're going to get a, uh, you're, going to, you're going to get a continuum of, you know, the true believers and the hangers on and the renter crowds and all of that. But, but, but is, it is a unifying theme um, that they feel that their actions will make the world a better place, even if they fail. Um, John, you've been extremely generous with your time, but what I'd what I'd like to do is, um, uh, yeah, just as a way of wrapping up, um, how should governments deal with this area? Because it's com, we know <laughs> we know it's complex. Yeah, how do you how do you grapple with something that is? Um, It's a mosaic of sort of bleakness, um, and trying to try and sensibly deal with it. That is, um, uh, Tom, a, a, a discussion for another entirely separate podcast. <laughs> However, or, or 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 invite me back to Australia. But I will say this: the most important abiding principle that governments need to follow in, in countering or preventing or otherwise marginally disrupting terrorism is to do no harm. Because, because one of the most, you know, so I, I say to my students, you know, ter terrorism is a form of psychological warfare. It's ultimately about trying to, 
it's, 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 it's about, you know, it's about the nasty business of doing unspeakable things. It's killing civilians. It's causing shock and terror and making us feel afraid to even go out. But the ultimate strategic goal is to try to achieve something much bigger and broader than that. And, and, and terrorist actors are very good at humiliating elected officials into making them feel that they are powerless to protect uh, the people who elected them. That is the recipe for overreaction. That is why government actors uh, time and time and time again will, 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 will leap before they look and they end up enacting everything from emergency legislation to, as we saw here, post 9-11 um, uh, torture that, that, that not only proved to be ineffective, but proved to be um, um, uh, completely counterproductive and likely ended up making the problem even worse. So uh, that, that, would need, that would need a much, much longer discussion, but do no that harm would be the first and most important principle for any yeah. government uh, with the unenviable task of dealing with this. I would love to have that discussion with you at, at another point in time, and 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 uh, I promise you there will be an email to that effect <laughs> coming to you. Soon. You got it, um, John. Look, thank you so much for for, for your time. Where, where, what is the most accessible place that people can get some of your work? Uh, given that there are there are there are academic journals that are that are paywalled and then closed off the general the general populace. Uh, where are some of the places that somebody can read the work you've done that, that may be easily accessed? Well, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate you saying that. So to, to, to all your listeners, I would say uh, do yourself a favor and do not, do not trouble yourself with the academic uh, work here. But I have a new book um, which is written for the general reader, um, and it's called Terrorist Minds, and it's coming out in February of uh, next year. And that's with Columbia University Press. That, that is the culmination of my career in terrorism research, and I hope it will be, hope it will be useful. John, thank you so much for, for what has been a fascinating chat, and um, I look forward to, to chatting again at some point. Um, and it, it, it's, been, it's been wonderful. Uh, cheers, Tom. Thanks so much for having me.